Hey, Rachel, you know those three dudes who like to hunt humans for sport? Miles, we're talking about comic books. You're gonna have to be more specific than that. You know, those old guys, Crimson Commando, Stonewall, and Super Saber. Whatever happened to them? Well, Crimson Commando got killed a couple years ago in Uncanny X-Men after losing his powers on M-Day and coming after Hope. Wolverine filleted him. Uh, tough break. Yeah, of course, he wasn't Crimson Commando anymore at that point. He was going by Cyborg X. Cyborg X. Cyborg X. That sounds like something you'd draw in your notebook during sixth grade social studies. It really does, doesn't it? Anyway, he was the last of the team. Stonewall and Super Saber had both been killed during their Freedom Force days, Stonewall on Muir Island and Super Saber in Kuwait. Aw, I mean, I know they were jerks, but I kind of liked them. It's okay. They did have a good run. Super Saber, literally. I mean, he got chosen to participate in a qualifying heat for the Galactic Marathon, along with a bunch of other Earth speedsters. Huh. Did he win? Nah, he got creamed by a Barry Allen reference. What?! Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 68th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So we have made it through the Mutant Massacre, our first big X-Event, one down, approximately 400 to go. I feel good about that. Yeah. So we're coming into kind of a weird period, uh, the first of many which is the post-crossover, let's get things back to a status quo, or maybe sometimes let's create a new status quo. This is sort of like when you come back from a vacation, but you're so exhausted from like visiting people or climbing mountains or whatever you were doing that you feel like you need an additional couple days off before you dive back into the rhythm of work. Yeah, Storm takes a look at her email, and she's got like 400 messages, and she knows a bunch of them are spam, so it's going to be much less intimidating when she gets rid of those, but they're still a lot. And she's got to sort through because she forgot to update her spam filter while she was on vacation, and you know, WordPress updated, so she's got all this stuff coming in through her email form on her website about the end days and like cures for diabetes that might just be me so the x-men have been worrying about the marauders murdering all of the morlocks and cutting the team in half basically not just basically literally they have lost a third of their team so our lineup going into the mutant massacre was storm wolverine colossus rogue nightcrawler and shadowcat and now half of those guys are off the board. Colossus has been paralyzed, Nightcrawler is comatose, and Shadowcat is gradually discorporating. Yeah, legitimately discorporating. She was stuck in a permanent phase state. Her molecules are kind of phasing farther and farther apart until she's eventually going to just dissipate and be dead. They've filled one of those empty slots with Psylocke, who's just recently joined the team. They'll soon be filling the other two with Dazzler and Longshot. Longshot showed up during an annual, but was promptly completely forgotten about for like three issues. Yeah, it's really weird. There's all this crazy stuff going on, and you'd think somebody with Longshot's skill set would actually be super useful, but he's just sort of not there. Or at least that they'd remember that he was around somewhere, but no, he just disappears for a while. There's also Dazzler, and Dazzler is currently touring with Lila Cheney, but she, unfortunately, and as part of the Mutant Massacre, has just been possessed by sentient malevolent 90s mall jewelry malice yes malice is one of the marauders and when the marauders started their attack on the morlock tunnels malice promptly took a left turn and just sort of wandered off to do what it's about to do or what she's about to do unclear right now now what exactly is malice because the only form in which we have ever seen malice embodied is as this choker with like a sort of a, a face skull in the middle of it okay so what malice is is sort of ambiguous we know that malice is a pure psychic entity Malice uh, does not have a physical form. She just exists in, you know, pure mental form. And the way she gains physicality is by possessing people. She sort of bonds with their psyches and brings out the worst in them. She brings out their darkest, most selfish, most destructive impulses. Right. The versions of people who are possessed by Malice tend to just be twisted versions of those characters, not like someone whose psyche has been totally overwritten, which is part of what makes Malice so creepy. And currently, Malice is getting her psychic tentacles into Dazzler. Dazzler has been touring with Lila Cheney, and she's been doing it under an assumed name with her hair dyed because she is basically a persona non grata after the events of the ill-fated graphic novel Dazzler the movie. Yeah, we're pretty sure people just read that steaming pile of pages and were like, oh, Alison Blair is terrible. Let's go throw fruit at her and be super racist. Aw, but as we know from her previous adventures, and especially from the events surrounding the arena, if Alison Blair has an Achilles heel, it is fame. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've seen that happen twice already, both in the Beauty and the Beast miniseries and in the storyline you just mentioned, Rachel, the arena. And now it's kind of starting to happen again. Okay, so I guess let's just dive straight into Uncanny X-Men 214, um, the first post-mutant massacre issue. And I love this first page so much, partially because it's drawn by Barry Windsor Smith, albeit a somewhat unrecognizable Barry Windsor Smith. 
this is the first time I've seen him do sort of a normal issue of X-Men, one that's just sort of X-Men plot going on as opposed to a special stylized event. Yeah, we mentioned last time we looked at Uncanny X-Men, actually, when we were looking at the Mutant Massacre issues, that we were switching artists almost every issue. And that's going to continue through the ones we're looking at today. When we've previously seen Barry Windsor Smith on X-Men, it's been on issues where his style was very, very closely linked to the theme, where he very much was the artist of the story. We saw him draw the two parts of Life Death and the issue where Wolverine and Lady Deathstrike first fought. Now, here, I think we're seeing something different. I mean, here he just comes across as a fill-in artist, and it's frustrating. It's unsatisfying, especially seeing that great alchemy on those previous appearances. Totally. But, um, oh, right, first page. So the first page just opens with Lila Shaney singing her heart out, but this narration, okay, so Claremont is great at narration. His prose is very purple and not in a bad way by any means, but this right here just gets me so freaking pumped for everything about to happen. Perhaps a little anticlimactically, but still. For three hours at Denver's famed Raven Theater, Lila Shaney's been singing her heart out. Rough, raw, passionate rock and roll. Hot as a midsummer sun and fierce as a blood fight. Pitched through a voice full of love and life and pain and hope that tells of the worst of the human condition. While reaching, ever reaching, for the best. Okay, as a critic, my new goal is to work the phrase fierce as a blood fight into more reviews. I mean, including, you know, restaurant reviews and shoe reviews. Well, I don't review those. Well, if you did, and I'm you should. I'm not really qualified to. Nonetheless. So I listen to a lot of types of music. One of the types I listen to the most is power metal because of exactly this description here. Like, throw in a dragon and a sword and you basically have most of what I enjoy listening to with the meedly me's and the weedly wees. I really want Lila Cheney to be real so I can have all of her albums and totally be a fanboy at all of her shows. You know, you say Lila Cheney, but I feel like what you just described, that your taste in entertainment of literally every genre and every medium is basically how close can this get to walter simonson's thor uh yes it basically needs to be full of enthusiasm and sincerity and intensity everything so anyway speaking of enthusiasm and intensity dazzler has been increasingly frustrated singing and playing back up to lila cheney and spurred on by malice she decides that she's going to take center stage this show so she just starts on a mad solo and her powers all start to go off and there's lights everywhere and she's very much in the center of everything and totally steals Lila's thunder. Well, and also totally sends the show off the rails. I mean, this is a stadium rock concert. It's been pretty carefully choreographed. I mean, she's kind of being a dick on levels that go beyond stealing the spotlight. Right. And when Lila calls her on it, she continues to be a dick because Malice is getting her claws more and more into Allison Blair's psyche. Meanwhile, back at Stately Xavier Manor, Stately Xavier Manor, the team is still reeling from the mutant massacre. Yeah, it's very much the calm after the storm, or at least the recovery after the storm. So, for instance, Storm and Psylocke and Rogue are trying to repair Cerebro from where it was damaged from Sabretooth's attack. Wolverine and Callisto are fighting in the danger room, like, fighting really hardcore, because that's kind of what they do. Callisto is totally dressed as a pirate, and it's awesome. What she's also dressed as, in a metaphorical sense, is a really good leader. Now, she's occasionally put her own desires before that of her people. See figure one, her capturing Angel to marry him a long time ago. But Everyone needs a hobby. Callisto wants nothing more than to get revenge on the Marauders to, you know, murder the hell out of them from all of the murdering the hell out of her people that was done. Aw, murder. But she realizes what she needs to do is to head to Muir Island with them, where they're going to be treated by Moira McTaggart and presumably safe from the Marauders, who are mostly stateside these days. And so, you know, props to you, Callisto. Good job getting over your base impulses to take care of your people, or at least the dozen or so who are left. Although it does seem vaguely foolhardy to assume that the Marauders don't have a boat. They do. It's a murder boat. I would assume. Murder boat. So, um, as this is all going on, you know, Wolverine and Callisto finish their fight, and Wolverine then shows up and just surprise pops his claws on Psylocke, who's still very new as a superhero. What the hell, Wolverine? Well, what the hell is that he wants to make sure she's ready? Now, we already know that Wolverine really respects Betsy Braddock. I mean, you know, he was the one that petitioned for her to be let onto the team because of how tough she was in the Sabretooth fight. This is very Pink Panther. Oh, it totally is. You're right. Except with more, you know, adamantium razor sharp claws. I've really only seen one of the movies. I don't know that for sure. That's true. They might be in some of the ones we haven't seen. And she's like, Wolverine, dude, what are you doing? I'm not in full control of my powers yet. I could have fried your brain. Do I look like Inspector motherfucking Clouseau? Uh, she does not. What he basically says is, you know, the world is worse than it ever was. We need to be prepared. You know, we could be attacked by murderous people. We've never even thought about at any moment. 
we need to be killers in return. It's very Robert E. Howard of him. But it's also very, very much indicative of the general move that the X-Men have been making, which is away from Xavier's dream and more towards a sort of survivalist whatever it takes approach, which we're going to see progress across the issues we're covering today. Yeah, these three issues cover a couple of themes, and one of them is definitely that. It's, you know, how far do you take idealism before it becomes foolish, before it becomes unrealistic, and before it gets you killed? Speaking of things that are likely to get you killed, let's cut to Dallas. All right, do you guys remember the terrible evil disco from the Hellfire storyline right before the Dark Phoenix saga? Oh man, the worst disco ever? Yeah, it was filled with the worst disco goers ever. God, I miss that disco. It was amazing. This is not that terrible disco, but it is another musical venue that Dazzler is in. And I think, okay, so my fan theory is that Dazzler misses the evil disco, and she's trying to turn this venue into another evil disco. Whoa, it's like a mini disco Inferno? It totally is. Oh man, because Inferno and Oh, so but many also layers. Just going for it, right? Yeah. And so what the X-Men see, because they've received reports of bad stuff going on, is Alison Blair performing and using her powers not just to create a light show, but also to influence the emotions of the people who are at the venue in very negative ways. Have you noticed that everyone's powers seem to have some kind of psionic twist? Yeah, and actually in the current E is for Extinction series and Secret Wars, even Cyclopses do. What? Yeah, I wonder if I have any psychic powers that can... Are they like feelings force beams? They come from a dimension of pure feelings force. That's terrible. I feel like any power Cyclops had that involved use or manipulation of feelings would just go really, really badly. But we digress. Just Uh, a little bit. The point is, Dazzler, who is clearly very influenced by Malice at this point, is close to turning this into a brawl and to turning this into a riot, essentially. Actually, here's a question. Are Dazzler's powers normally capable of that, or is that just a byproduct of Malice's influence here? I believe they are. She can really bring about sort of euphoria with the light shows and stuff that she does. But is that a byproduct of her powers, or is that just sort of in the same sense that, like, really good rock concerts or really good stage shows can make people giddy and euphoric? It's ambiguous, but the point is, this not-quite-the-evil-disco is about to turn into a evil-not-disco bloodbath. Oh, that's not good. So the X-Men show up to confront her, at which point Dazzler just attacks them immediately. Right, and Malice at this point decides to take a vacation and hop around among the X-Men, and I have a question about that because my understanding of Malice prior to this, I mean, I'd read this before, but I'd forgotten, was that you had to put her on voluntarily, that she didn't just, like, show up and possess you. There had to be some kind of, like, voluntary fusion or acceptance of her. I don't think so. I do get the impression that Malice enjoys that in the same way that, you know, a cat would enjoy toying with a mouse. But if Malice wants to, she can just jump into someone immediately, and unless they have very strong psychic defenses and or are expecting it, they're kind of screwed. She's just going to succeed. Conveniently, as soon as you're possessed by Malice, you're wearing her choker, which works out really well for, you know, identifying victims of possession and kind of makes me wonder how any of them ever managed to pass, because you'd think they just do turtleneck checks or something. Or something, yeah. I mean, I kind of feel like when you're a brand new driver and you start obsessively checking your side and rearview mirrors all the time, I feel like the X-Men would be doing that for that weird little malice choker. And it just gets really difficult around, like, 1996. Oh, man, totally. Yeah, so malice does possess a number of people. Most notably, she possesses Rogue, who flies outside, starts breaking a bunch of stuff and attacking a bunch of people, and makes a point of identifying herself and her team affiliation to the gathered police, basically just dragging the X-Men's reputation through the mud as hard as she can. You'd think that they'd learn by now that anytime someone does that, they're possessed. Uh, or y- like an evil doppelganger. I guess supervillains do it sometimes. It's true. And, you know, the police in the Marvel Universe are not always the most aware or intelligent. And so the X-Men once again confront Rogue because they're like, if she keeps doing this, not only is she going to hurt a lot of people, but it's going to get even worse for us than it already is. And Malice tries to possess one more person, that being ostensibly the weakest X-Men due to her lack of powers, Storm. But Storm, because she is the coolest, best, brightest, smartest, and has the highest willpower of anyone ever forever, manages to shake her off. And, you know, this bugs me. This actually really bugs me. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because Storm is awesome, and I will be the first to jump on the Storm is awesome bandwagon. But moments like this, I mean, at this point in X-Men, I just expect that Storm will be able to just shake off any external influence, and there's no tension to it. I feel like moments like that should be a big deal, and at this point, they're not. It's just that, oh yeah, Storm is just always that badass. Of course she can. 
Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty clear that Storm is Claremont's favorite of his characters, and I don't think that's Which a bad Which is reasonable, thing. because just, Storm is the goddamn best. Absolutely. But, you know, once a character can just succeed at anything all the time, that kind of humanity, that kind of ability for the reader to identify with that character, starts to kind of go away. Now, it will get better. This is not, you know, a trend for Storm that's just going to continue on and on. So but she's right not going to turn into Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau, is what you're saying? She's not going to be perfect at everything forever, that's true. So, yeah, Malice is basically defeated and manages to escape. We do briefly see the Malice Choker around the head of the police force slash SWAT team that showed up for this. And the X-Men are left trying to figure out what to do because all of a sudden, I mean, they already weren't really doing too well in the public eye. And now it's way worse very suddenly. Now, Dazzler wants to turn herself in. She feels really bad about this, but Storm actually talks her out of it, basically says, you know, that's not going to do any good. It's going to stoke already high anti-mutant sentiment. You want to just, like, come join the team instead? And as all this is going on, Wolverine suddenly pops his claws again and is about to kill Storm. What the hell, Wolverine? And his teammates quickly stop him, like, no, no, Malice is gone, Malice is gone. And he just sort of deflates. His eyes are just sort of wide, staring into the middle distance, and he's just saying, but I, my senses, they told me, Storm, I'm sorry, I was, I was so sure. Aw, Wolverine. And we don't really ever see this with Wolverine, this like utter shaking of his confidence. I mean, even the font size in the speech bubble as he says this just gets smaller and smaller. Yeah, we see him uncertain about his choices, but we rarely see him uncertain about the skills and especially the senses and instincts that motivate them. And that's something that is going to dog him for a while as we go into issues 215 and 216 and the storyline Old Soldiers, which incidentally, I think, is the title of the collection where these are collected of the trade they're in. Yeah, I always find that really interesting, like to see the collection of an era that's not an event with its own big name, like, say, Inferno or whatever, what they choose to call that trade paperback. So last time, I think it was Ghosts, which was the name of one of the issues. This Mm -hmm. time, it is indeed Old Soldiers. And as we're continuing to artist hop, this issue is drawn, I believe, by Alan Davis. I am never sad to see Alan Davis. And we open out of nowhere with a plane crash with a passenger jet with the controls completely out. And we know whose backstory this must be. We're getting this from the point of view of the pilot. And although we haven't seen her in a while, there's really only one character this could be, and that is Madeline Pryor. And I love the narration here. I love the captions that are from Maddie's perspective because we really get an impression of who she is as a person. And one of the things I like about that is who she is as a person is very much not Jean Grey. Full load, 387 passengers, 16 crew members, so many lives in my hands. Normally the Boeing's a pussycat, not this time. No hydraulics, two engines gone and a third blows as we cross the runway threshold. I'm suddenly flying a brick with pretensions. Crosswind shunts us sideways. I try to correct. No time, no power, no strength. I shriek with rage as we fall, trying to haul the wing up through sheer force of will. Wasted effort. Tanks rupture. Hull splits wide. Burning fuel sprays the main cabin. The screams begin. We skid down the runway, my plane tearing herself apart. Fire and rescue units rush our way. They're too late. Yeah, and I mean, I love just, she's got this wry sense of humor coupled with a sort of technical focus on details and a calm competence. That's very much Madeline Pryor and no one else. And man, I miss this character. Me too. And you know, I think we forget how long she was around too. Oh yeah, she's been around since not that long after Jean Grey died, which was ages ago, years ago in comics time. Yeah, yeah, she has. And the last time we saw her was actually back when the X-Men were in San Francisco last, when we saw her brought into an emergency room as a Jane Doe with gunshot wounds. And here's where we find out how she got them. Right, because her memory of this plane crash, which very significantly has a phoenix raptor surrounding her as she walks away as the only survivor from it. Oh man, yeah, that's a fantastic detail. And that's also something that's happening if you were reading these as they were coming out, concurrent to those starting to appear around Jean Grey in X-Factor. And you would you would find yourself, I would imagine, wondering if those were connected, which as it happens, they're not. But it's a great moment and it's a great note of synchronicity. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, her memories sort of transition into the present as she's in an ambulance, and we, the readers, immediately recognize Scalp Hunter. She's been kidnapped by the Marauders. She manages to get away from them temporarily, but they shoot her as she's escaping, and she's found by actual paramedics and brought to the hospital again as a Jane Doe. Meanwhile, back in Westchester, the X-Men are going through some major transitions of their own. Storm has decided to split up the team. You never split the party, Aurora. And yet... So the injured members, again, that's Nightcrawler, who's comatose, Colossus, who is okay but paralyzed, and Shadowcat, who is gradually discorporating into nothing. 
are going to get sent to Muir Island, where they'll presumably be safer from the marauders, and also where there's, you know, Moira McTaggart, who has a better chance of figuring out how to help them. Going with them are Psylocke, Rogue, Dazzler, and Longshot. Storm basically figures, all right, now I don't fully trust Psylocke because she's still new. This Longshot guy, even newer. Dazzler, well, she just got possessed. And Rogue, well, she's the one person I do trust who I don't need here with me. Well, she's specifically sending Psylocke, not because she doesn't trust her, but because these are the most vulnerable members of the team right now, and Psylocke's the only one who has a chance of predicting an attack. I always got that as sort of her justification to Betsy, rather than her actual reasoning. I mean, I think with all of them, she's looking for reasons to send them away, so it'll just be her and Wolverine there, because right now, Wolverine is really the only member of the team who she completely trusts. Yeah, the story seems to be playing up this whole thing, where the X-Men don't trust each other anymore after the Malice fight, after they all got possessed. And to me, I don't know, I don't feel the story really sells it, you know? I mean, if we'd had more mistrust being sown over a longer period of time, especially given how much Chris Claremont loves sowing seeds that won't mature until later, then I think I'd believe it a little bit more. But with this, it just seems very sudden and extreme. Yeah, it really, really does. And especially seems sudden and extreme because given what Wolverine went through last issue, He doesn't have a lot of reason to trust himself, and honestly, I would say she doesn't have a lot of reason to trust him, and so the fact that she's honing in on him and the two of them as the center of the team around whom it'll have to be rebuilt seems peculiar to me. I mean, they are, but not really for the reasons that Storm gives. And so these other X-Men head off to Muir Island, and man, so there's this scene on the Blackbird as they're heading there. Everyone's asleep except for Rogue, who's piloting the plane, and Shadowcat, in her ghost form, who she can't even talk anymore, just sort of phases in and is thinking to herself, I'm going to die, and nobody can help me. There was so much more I wanted to do, and specifically, she looks at Longshot, who she sees as beautiful, because, you know, he's a very pretty man, and realizes, hey, I'm never going to be able to, for instance, talk to him like a boy and a girl sometimes talk to each other. All these experiences that I always wanted to have are just not going to happen. And she incorporeally kisses him, just kind of on a whim. And that wakes him up, and she runs the hell away. But it's it's so goddamn tragic. I mean, what it reminds me of more than anything is the scene with Colossus in the Brood Saga, where they all have brood parasites inside them and realize they're all probably going to die. And just this sense of, I had so much more to do while I was still alive, and now I'm not going to be able to, that's always poignant. And it's especially poignant when, as it was then and as it is now, it's a kid. So back in New York, Storm and Wolverine are going to check on Sarah Gray. This is Jean Gray's sister and her family. And Sarah isn't a mutant, but she is an outspoken mutant rights advocate. And they know, well, they think they know, although it turns out to be something else in that case because of Karma's family, that the Marauders are going after families of no mutants. And so they decide they're going to check on the Grays. Unfortunately, they are too late and arrive to see that the house has just been demolished. It's smoldering wreckage, and there are no signs of bodies or any survivors. And this is where we're going to see something that, now that Simonson has taken over X-Factor, we're going to see all the time, which is crossovers between the two books. Well, or moments and hinted crossovers, because the Sarah Gray plotline, that's playing out in X-Factor right now. Yeah, and so what Wolverine suddenly senses is that Cyclops was here. Well, okay, Cyclops is out doing stuff, sure. And that Jean Grey was with him? And this is not okay. Wolverine remembered smelling Jean in the Morlock tunnels during the mutant massacre. Just sort of shrugged it off because there was other stuff going on. But with this, it's very clear. Jean Grey was somehow here. And again, Jean was there because they are ducking their heads into an X-Factor storyline. But it's enough to really freak Wolverine out. And he splits. He runs. Right, because he has no idea that Jean is back. None of the X-Men do at this point. He saw her die on the moon. And Wolverine just backhands Storm as he panics and runs. This is the second time in a row he hasn't been able to trust his senses, and it is just blowing his freaking mind. Storm is knocked out, and she comes to in a dungeon, an actual one, with chains and stuff. Right. Which, you know, okay, segue, sure. She manages to break out because, you know, she's Storm and she can pick all the locks, and discovers that she's not the only prisoner there. There is a young woman who appears to have been stealthily designed by Tetsuya Nomura. Yeah, she seriously looks like a character from The World Ends With You or, or Kingdom Hearts. Her hair is amazing and her wardrobe is truly questionable. Well, Storm doesn't really have time to interact with her, so she's scoping out her location, which, as it turns out, is a big fancy hunting lodge full of trophies. Not only game, but also, you know, things obviously captured or won in war. Yeah, like there's a rip-up Nazi flag, there are various warheads and shells and weapons. And a whole lot of medals, and that is because this is home to three gentlemen. Do they actually have a group name? They don't, do they? Okay, no, they don't, and this was bothering me the entire time. So these three guys, we'll talk in a little bit more detail momentarily, but they're World War II vets who hunt humans for sport, like you do. 
And who do you refer to them as? The three old guys who hunt humans for sport? Or the hunters, but that would be too vague? Or Crimson Commando, Super Saber, and Stonewall? But that's a lot of syllables. The Zeroffs? Well, that could work. I settled upon the murder grandpas, and so henceforth, we will be referring to these guys as the murder grandpas. So who are the murder grandpas? The murder grandpas are three older gentlemen, specifically Frank Bohannon, who goes by Crimson Commando. And the first time I looked him up, I misread his name as Frank Borman, and I quickly realized what my error had been. But for about five minutes, I got to live in a magical world where the commander of Apollo 8 dressed up in a red union suit and hunted humans for sport. And it was a beautiful five minutes. What a magical world that would be. And I'm glad it's not real because that's terrifying. And then we have Stonewall, Lewis Hamilton, and Super Saber, Martin Fletcher. Again, speaking of these identities, I deeply, deeply resent that Stonewall is just like, well, specifically, I resent the fact that Stonewall is not Marsha P. Johnson, because I feel like if there is anyone who has earned the right to throw up their hands in consternation and hunt humans for sport, she has. You may have a valid point there. It's true. You know, I'm, I'm going to go on a brief, entirely non-Marvel-related tangent here and say that if you don't know who Marsha P. Johnson is, you should Google her because she is amazing and an actual goddamn superhero and gets forgotten and written out of a lot of accounts of Stonewall. And that is basically in favor of a bunch of cisgender white dudes. And it's not OK and not cool. And Marsha Johnson is amazing. And again, I feel like she would be entirely justified in getting frustrated and hunting humans for sport were she so inclined. Well, I'm glad she hasn't. Uh, but she could. I, okay. And it would be so cool. <laughs> uh, except for the humans who are being hunted for sport. And I assume she would be selective. Presumably. Now, these guys actually themselves are somewhat selective, so we learned a little bit about them. They were all World War II veterans. They were kind of a group of superheroes working for the Allies. They were sort of the low-powered superheroes. They're kind of the low-rent versions of... Gosh, what what would it be? Maybe like Callisto, Blob, and Quicksilver? Uh, pretty much, yeah. But yeah, they were operating along with like the invaders, who of course got a lot more press. And so when the war ended, they were like, all right, we want to keep doing this. We want to keep serving our country. Let's- Specifically, we really, really want to hunt communists. We're, we're really-, really into that. That's mainly Crimson Commando is really, really into this idea. Which is interesting because he wears red. What's up with that? Maybe he's really upset because he feels like it's been taken from him. Like it used to be his color and now it's associated with a political movement. That's probably it right there. And so, yeah, what they've been doing since then is they've been capturing people who sort of are beyond the law. Well, Stonewall, Lewis Hamilton, specifically is a lawyer, and he uses his job and his professional connections to track down folks and perpetrators who slip through the cracks of the legal system, who these guys then kidnap, hunt for sport, and murder. And, you know, they give this very Punisher-esque speech about how they get to the folks the law can't reach and they do it to strike the fear and hearts of other criminals, but they're entirely secretive about what they do, so other criminals have no idea. Like, the more they try to justify it, the more it comes across as them just coming up with increasingly complex rationalizations to justify the fact that they just really wanted to hunt humans for sport. Like, they just had a dream and they sort of retconned a reason for it. Follow your bliss, murder grandpas. Follow your bliss, murder grandpas. Man, I want that on, like, a rustic plaque with little, like, stenciled chicks or something. Somebody could crochet it. It would be great. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I'm so into this. Yeah, like, rustic Martha Stewart murder grandpa art. Yeah. Okay, so they bring out this other girl, the the Tetsuya Nomura-designed one, that Storm saw earlier, and we find out her name is Priscilla, and she and her boyfriend, who has most recently been hunted for sport to death, were drug dealers, sort of from a rich, upper-class, well-respected family. And they've been getting kids hooked on smack or something. Hooked on the drugs. Yes, the drugs. Man, Priscilla's awful. She's so bad. She just comes across as kind of this clueless rich kid at first. But then it turns out she's just like really vindictive and bloodthirsty. She totally is. She's terrible. And so the murder grandpas have captured her and they're going to hunt her for sport, which, okay, that fits their, their stated MO. So, all right. But with Storm, they just found her at the site of a burns-down home. Apparently looting it because she was looking for clues and she was also, you know, trying to salvage things that belonged to this family she was friends with since their corpses weren't there and she figured that was kind of a decent thing to do. They saw someone looting an arson scene. Yeah, and so they brought her in for that reason and are going to hunt her for sport as well. That seems like a really extreme penalty for, like, looting an already burned-down house. I mean, I get that it's illegal. And I get that it's arguably immoral, but capital punishment seems kind of extreme here. The murder grandpas have a zero tolerance policy for, well, anything. The murder grandpas are kind of awful. They are. So, yeah, Storm basically says, well, I'm innocent and here's why, but A, you probably don't care, and B, now that I've seen what you do, you wouldn't let me leave here alive anyway, so screw it, let's get this over with. So she basically runs off with Priscilla and is like, follow me if you want to live. They managed to stay alive for a while, 
And Storm really dislikes the idea of returning Priscilla to society because it's obvious that she's kind of terrible, but she likes the whole murder game thing even less. And this right here ties in with one of those themes we were describing earlier, which is, you know, how far does idealism go before it becomes naivete? Well, and she actually addresses that fairly specifically. The X-Men have always stood more for ideals than reality, starting with our founder's dream of a world where mutant and human could live together in peace and harmony. It is not that saving the girl is the right thing to do, though it may well be. It is that, for better or worse, abandoning her is totally wrong. Yeah, and we see this play out again very shortly after when they're doing what you do when you're in an adaptation of The Most Dangerous Game, which is to set traps for your pursuers. And she actually designs a really good one, like sort of a fishing line at about head level where she knows Super Saber is going to run by and he's going to be running at like a million miles an hour, and so that'll take his head off. And at the very last minute, right as he's coming up, she drops it, much to Priscilla's frustration, is like, no, I I can't do this, this isn't right, this isn't who I am. Later on, his teammates will stumble across this, and only Stonewall among them will start to actually rethink their whole murder is awesome and we should do more of it philosophy. Yeah, Crimson Commando especially keeps saying, no, 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 this all makes perfect sense, we are doing good things for the world and we're amazing. Oh, shut up, Crimson Commando, you just want a creepy underground human head trophy room. Now I'm just thinking of the movie adaptation, which is entirely different. Man, the movie adaptation of The Most Dangerous Game is so bad. I think we watched it in 8th grade English and I still remember how angry it made me. Yeah, as I recall, the bad guy gets knocked out the window at the end, and you can see his leg bounce up from where he hit the trampoline that's clearly on the other side of the fake wall. They also throw in a love interest, which makes me so mad, because part of what makes The Most Dangerous Game a really good story is just how stark it is. Like, it's essentially two characters facing off, and it's just about the two of them in this really intense interplay. And when you add, like, the love interest and the love interest's brother, and... It's like adding a love interest to a BattleBots match. Which, actually, no, that would be amazing. They that should totally do awesome. that. That would be awesome. Are you kidding? I changed my mind. Do that, BattleBots. Anyway. So they continue pursuing her, and what we see again and again is Storm doing her best to save people she maybe shouldn't. Like, at one point, she ambushes Super Saber. She manages to spring a trap on him. And Priscilla figures, well, this is my chance. Storm's probably just going to turn me in anyway, or maybe if I kill her, these guys will let me off easy. So I'm just going to push over a big fucking boulder on them. Right, and so she triggers an avalanche that buries Storm and Super Saber, and the last thing we see Storm thinking about, because you can see thoughts because it's a comic, is that she has to save this guy who is just now trying to kill her. Speaking of attempted murder and its proponents, meanwhile in kind of civilization, Wolverine is still freaking the hell out. Yeah, he's in this sort of semi-feral state. I mean, those uh, wild eyes we saw when he first realized he couldn't trust his senses, it's like if those took over his entire body. And he's so unaware of what's going on around him, he's so lost in this, like, sensory confusion that he just sort of wanders out onto a street and gets hit by a truck. He runs sort of headfirst into a camper, and the couple driving it is freaked out, and they stop and try to figure out what they hit. There are enormous claw marks in their front bumper, and Wolverine by this time has fled, but they hear a haunting sound from the woods, a noise that they claim no human could make, and I'm trying to figure out what the sound is supposed to be, because the actual sound effect for it is spelled H-R-R-R-A-R-R-R-R-R-R, and as far as I can tell, Wolverine is running off into the woods making truck noises. Oh man, maybe he thought he was a truck and he was trying to mate with the other truck and that's why it hit him. And he's, but, but he's, he's so good at it that they know, you know, no human could make a truck noise that accurate. Everybody thinks Grant Morrison invented the idea of secondary mutations. No, they appear right here because Wolverine has a healing factor, claws that extend from his forearms, adamantium bones, which admittedly aren't mutant, but whatever, and the ability to perfectly mimic a truck. I'm into this. I like this idea. This is good. It's canon. We say so. It's official. So. Unfortunately, there is not time for this pleasant young couple to decipher the mystery ahead of them, because who should show up but Priscilla the Jerk, who grabs the gun that they happen to have with them and shoots them both and steals their camper. Yeah, it's actually really shocking, because, I mean, we've seen her be a jerk and very self-centered, and we've even seen her trying to opportunistically kill Storm. But at this point, she's murdering innocents in cold blood just to take their vehicle. And for me, that was where she crossed the line from I don't like you to you are irredeemably evil. Right? What happened to good old-fashioned hijacking? You know, you just hit triangle, as I recall. So, yeah, she does this, and Wolverine has been nearby, and he's been in such a haze, he's been so not confident in his senses, that he doesn't trust the sense of danger he initially gets from her, and so he doesn't intervene in time, and he realizes this couple 
He might very well have saved him if he'd trusted his senses and had attacked Priscilla. God damn it, Wolverine. This is why we can't have nice things. Again, for me, this does seem a little bit extreme. I mean, Wolverine is very resilient, including very psychologically resilient. The idea that he would be reduced to this sort of incompetent beast just by this one event of having tried to kill Storm and this other event of having maybe smelled Jean Grey. I mean, admittedly, those are weird traumatic things, but I don't know. He seems tougher than that to me. To be fair, both of those happened coming out of a really, really, really bad few days. Oh, that's I mean, true. they aren't happening in a vacuum. It was not, you know, lollipops, sunshine, candy, and occasional fistfights with a Hellfire Club leading into this. It was like three days of trudging through sewers, fighting with people who were actively murdering everyone in sight, having, you know, horrible close encounters after basically attempting to kill a teammate, and generally, you know, continually questioning all of the foundations of his life and moral precepts. So, you know, I think I read this as a little more organic than you did. You do make a valid point. Wolverine has had a very bad, um, well, lifetime, let's be honest. Yeah, he really has. Now, is he the one who knocks Priscilla out because the truck breaks down? She gets out to try to figure out what's going on, and someone shows up and knocks her out. And I cannot for the life of me figure out who it is because it's obviously not one of the murder grandpas. They would have just killed her. I don't think it's Storm because it doesn't seem like Storm's M.O. And also because I don't really see Storm sneaking up behind someone saying surprise and then knocking them out, which is what happens here. But we only ever see their hand. I don't know. I was leaning toward a miscolored storm myself. But regardless, I think what's really going on at this point in alternate universe diverges into a different timeline where it was really the entire thing was just a surprise birthday party for Priscilla. They arranged the whole thing just for this moment and she turns around and it's all of her friends and her boyfriend is not really dead. And there's a lot of cocaine because she seems to really like that. And a big oh, yeah. Cake. Yeah. She goes on a tangent about how much she misses cocaine. Yeah. So, you know, happy ending for everybody in that alternate timeline that is unfortunately not the timeline we will be following. Right. In this timeline, Stonewall finds Priscilla unconscious, but Storm emerges at the last minute and prevents him from killing her, knocking him into a swamp in which he is about to drown until Storm then saves his life because Storm is just saving the hell out of everyone. Unfortunately for Storm, Priscilla is an ungrateful jerk and immediately tries to murder her, but is herself killed by Crimson Commando. There's attempted murder and successful murder left and right over here. It's ridiculous. It's like reverse clue. And Storm and Wolverine do manage to subdue Crimson Commando and Stonewall. Uh, Super Saber at this point is missing, presumed dead. He's not actually dead, but we never find out how he actually survived. Right. And so Storm basically tells Crimson Commando and Stonewall, so here's the deal. You turn yourself in and you confess your crimes or I kill you both right now. And if you come after me, you know that the guy with the big claw hands is going to come after you and kill you. So, you know, this is in your best interest. And they, at first, are not taking her seriously until it becomes very clear that, no, she means it. She is not bluffing. She will, in fact, kill them. She's been reduced to this after what she's been through. Cold Storm. And Storm and Wolverine watch them the next day, turning themselves in. And at that point, Storm explains a little bit of what she's thinking. She is tired of letting villains like the Marauders make the first move. And she thinks that maybe it's time that the X-Men took a more proactive stance, that they found threats and eliminated them to protect the innocent. Now, what this reminds me of more than anything is especially more recent incarnations of X-Force. Yeah, this is Cyclops's X-Force in a nutshell. Yeah. And what interests me as well in this scene is that Wolverine is basically saying, hey, it's a slippery slope. If we keep following our ideals, no matter what methods those lead to, we're going to end up just like the murder grandpas. We're going to end up crucified in Australia. Well, I mean, that'll happen regardless. But so, yeah, I mean, to see Wolverine say that and later on to go and lead eventually in secret X-Force, a team that does exactly that, it's some interesting evolution over these various decades. Now, we are at this point going to put Uncanny X-Men to the side and take a turn to the sharp left to look at an out-of-continuity special that came out several years preceding the issues we've just examined. And that is the 1985 Heroes for Hope. So Heroes for Hope was part of the big long box of comics that I got from my father when I was a kid, and I didn't really know what to make of it because it was a one-shot that wasn't exactly clear when it happened in continuity, and it had a very different feel than any of the rest of the X-Men stuff and a story that didn't seem to connect to any of it. Well, it's also a massive, massive jam comic. Every couple pages have a different creative team, and it spans not only contemporary comics creators, but also other writers and artists. So for example, just a handful of the team-ups in here We've got Louise Simonson, John Byrne, and Terry Austin, Stephen King, Bernie Wrightson, and Jeff Jones, Alan Moore and Richard Corbin, Harlan Ellison, Frank Miller, and Bill Sinkevich, Mike Barron, Steve Rude, and Carl Potts, George R.R. R. Martin, Herb Trimpey, and Sel Buscema, Archie Goodwin, Howard Shaken, and Walt Simonson, and that's just a handful. Yeah, this is a really big issue, and every couple pages they switch off creative teams to, you know, some people we've seen work together and some people we never dreamed would. 
in researching this, you know, years after I first read it when I was a kid, I found out the context of it. We know from the story that it's partially about hunger slash famine and Africa, but apparently it was a big benefit to assist with the Ethiopian famine of 84 and 85. Man, the context, I think, is actually even more interesting than the issue itself, which doesn't have much of a story because it gets so weird so fast. This was originally supposed to be a benefit for Oxfam, right? Yeah, for Oxfam, which was a charitable organization. So it was kind of like the Do They Know It's Christmas and We Are the World Live Aid concerts, you know, like it was going to be this big pop culture thing and they're going to donate the proceeds to charity. Well, the problem with this is that Marvel didn't run this by Oxfam first and Oxfam was not familiar with the X-Men and they weren't really familiar with Marvel Comics. So when Marvel was like, here, we made you this, Oxfam looked at this and they were like, oh, hell no. I really liked the way they described it as, quote, racist, sexist, and reprehensible, especially they found objection to the way Storm was portrayed. Right, I think specifically because she's in a dominatrix outfit at one point, didn't it? That's part of it, yeah. There's another part of the controversy, though, that is even better. So the logo was designed by a very, very famous logo designer at the time who happened to share a name with a very famous pop star. And somehow Oxfam got it into their heads that pop star Janet Jackson had designed the logo and Marvel had stolen it. Right. And so Oxfam was like, no, we're not going to work with you for all of these strange reasons. And Marvel was like, oh, okay, then let's work instead with the American Friends Service Committee. Which is a very cool organization and does good work. My mom used to volunteer for them. Oh, neat. So that's just the background. And, you know, the thing is, it's a pretty weird comic, but nothing in it is ever going to top that backstory. Yeah, it's true. So first off, I'm going to say we're not going to cover everything in this comic because it's very long. And because of the jam comic nature, the plot is very disjointed. But I do kind of want to give an overview of it and of just the weird feel of seeing all these vastly different creative teams all butted up against each other. The first page has narration that is literally Stanley wondering what the hell is going on in X-Men. Yeah, he's the writer of the first segment, and it becomes very clear just how dated his style, which, you know, in the Silver Age, I mean, it was the Silver Age for Marvel, but just how that does not exactly hold up very well in the 80s. Let me actually find this because I want to read it. The first page just really reads as Stanley just being baffled by the X-Men. Quote, Welcome to the home of the outcast mutants known as the X-Men, the most uniquely powerful superheroes on Earth. It is morning. The sun is bright. The air is calm. There is not a cloud in the sky. All is silent and still. The world seems covered with a blanket of peace. So why is this girl screaming? I'm just imagining it in his, like, Stanley used car salesman voice. Because the first page is just a splash of Rachel Summers in her Phoenix outfit just going, no! And yeah, I'm imagining him just describing it, looking at it and be like, what? What the hell is even going on here? And so what we see is basically all of the X-Men being hit with these weird illusory visions. Of an entity. Most of which kind of tie into some of their psychological weaknesses and concerns. And we're not going to go over all of these. Like I said, it's very disjointed. But I do want to focus on a few of the more significant in terms of the creative teams that work on them. So the most creatively notable, I know one of the ones that you keep on coming back to. And the first one that you told me about, the one that you said you remembered the most, was the Stephen King Bernie Wrightson bit. Yeah, I mean, okay, so Stephen King, everyone pretty much knows he's Stephen King. Bernie Wrightson is most famous for working on a lot of the old horror comics from, you know, the age before the age of superheroes as we know it. Well, he's, and he's still around and he's still doing amazing stuff. If you haven't in particular seen his Frankenstein illustrations, they are so beautiful. There's a really, really nice hardcover of them. I think the Dark Horse put out a few years ago. Uh, yeah, there is. And so, you know, Kitty's feeling hungry after the weird stuff that's happened. And so she goes to get some food from the kitchen. And runs into this, like, Grim Reaper-looking figure who offers her, you know, a plate of steak and of corn on the cob, and it looks beautiful, and she's so hungry, and she's becoming, like, super emaciated panel by panel, and the food, as she grabs it, like, starts to rot, and there are maggots in it. And I love the uh, dialogue here from this Grim Reaper entity as she's just, like, turning into this horrifying, desiccated, almost zombie. I am Misery's maitre d', the chef of starvation. Waiter to the waifs of the world, hash-slinger to the homeless. I am, my dear, every hungry, bloated belly, every dying eye, every picked bone drying in the desert. I'm pestilence and desolation, kitty, but my friends just call me hungry. Like I said, Stephen King, big time. And I love how it just, like, ricochets around the tone of the book from creative team to creative team, 
and they don't line up at all. And it's actually really cool to look at that. Yeah. And the more Corbin segment, which, again, speaking of amazing, amazing team ups, I'm not sure if these guys have ever done anything else before or after. That's Alan Moore and Richard Corbin, to clarify. Yeah, we actually get a, a panel of Hitler thanking Magneto for killing humans. Uh, later on, Harlan Ellison, Frank Miller and Bill Sinkiewicz show us Wolverine turned fully human, confronting his bestial side as a separate entity, finally defeating and reclaiming it. He gets through this relatively easy. And then we get to Storm, which is Oxfam's primary set of objections, I'm guessing, came from this segment. Yeah, she is all of a sudden, you know, being confronted by this carnival barker who leads her through this hall of mirrors where she sees all these people she could have been. I mean, some of them, I gotta admit, are pretty stereotypical in terms of race. Some of them are certainly very sexualized, which I think as superhero comics readers, we're sort of inured to. But if you're not a comics reader, I can see that being kind of weird. Well, and we're also used to a version of Storm whose arc involves, you know, questioning and looking at her sexuality and herself as a sexual entity. Yeah. Not a capital E entity, because that's reserved for embodiments of the concept of hunger and Charles Xavier's id, but you know. And so the X-Men all get through their various visions, some more successfully than others, and realize, all right, they've got to do something about this. They have to figure out where this thing is coming from. Yeah, they, they follow it to Africa. I don't think they specify a country, just sort of somewhere generically famine-stricken. And when they get there, what they're greeted by is just this enormous crowd of natives, of locals, who are clearly suffering from a severe famine. They get there just in time for some relief plans to land with supplies and spend the next few days helping out. And on the one hand, I see what Marvel was going for here. I mean, they're doing a benefit to help with a famine that's going on in Ethiopia. So they really want to make people sympathetic to the plight of the people who are living there. And that's cool, you know, showing the X Men doing their best to help them out. But at the same time, what we also see is the entire continent of Africa reduced to a crowd of starving people who really don't have any names or agency or even any culture beyond being in a big crowd with a bunch of tents around. And that's that's a little rough, and I suspect that's part of what Oxfam was not okay with, and I don't blame them. In the entire issue, there's an odd tension between, you know, the fantasy story and the occasional points where it, it abuts with actual geopolitical discussions surrounding famine, and they never quite manage to reconcile them, which I think contributes to that disconnect that you're describing. It's an interesting book to look at for the jam comic stuff, for the wide range of creative teams, and of course, for the super weird backstory. But as an actual story, I think it falls very flat. Yeah, and especially the conclusion to the story, which involves Rogue, who is the one who has not been confronted by one of these dark fantasies. She absorbs all the X-Men's powers in the middle of the night and goes off to fight it and ends up fighting this sort of lizard creature, which, when she touches it, takes her over. And at that point, the X-Men wake up one by one, at which point Rogue doesn't have their powers anymore and do manage to defeat it or at least drive it off. They determine, I think, finally, that the one way to really confront famine is with hope, that that's all you can really do in the face of overwhelming loss and darkness, which is a good but not actually very useful sentiment. Yeah, but you know, what was useful is that this book was a success for its stated purpose anyway. It raised over half a million dollars for famine relief, and in the mid-80s, that's a lot of money. I mean, right now it's a decent bit of money as well, but then it especially was. So, with that, you've got questions. Yes, indeed. Patronus Wolfsbane asks on Tumblr, I was wondering who made the costumes for the X-Men. Is there a mutant with the power to construct costumes perfectly? Do they hire someone to construct them? Does Xavier make them? Has this ever been explained or mentioned at all in the comics? So, uh, it's been partially explained. I mean, we don't really have explanations for where all of the X-Men's costumes come from, but we do have a little bit. I believe in the Silver Age, Jean made them, or she, at least she made the second round of them. Well, that would certainly go with the whole thing in the Silver Age where woman was sort of a profession that some people had. Unfortunate. But later on, that got better. Um, Specifically, Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four developed a concept you may have heard of called Unstable Molecules. This is the Bronze Age X-Men costumes, I think. I remember them being introduced in giant size. I think so, yeah. And Unstable Molecules, when you make fabric or whatever out of them, are immensely durable and resistant to elements, to damage, to even shape-shifting. That's what he wears when he's all, you know, stretchy and stuff. And so that actually works really well for some of the X-Men specifically, like, say, Iceman or Wolfsbane, who change their form or temperature or whatever when they actively use their powers. Later so, on, and I think even currently, it's mostly been Shi'ar technology. Right, exactly. You guys remember the clothing replicator that we saw during the Brood Saga that Kitty made, like, like 10 costumes out of? Basically, the X-Men eventually got a hold of stuff like that. And I do specifically remember, I don't remember exactly when, 
But at one point, Boom Boom makes all of X-Force new, uh, new costumes using this thing, and it's actually a really charming scene. So definitely those two things. I'm sure a lot of their other outfits come from elsewhere, but I think those are the ones I can think of that are confirmed. So Carius asks, also on Tumblr, Magnum P.I. and Tom Selleck seem to come up in the New Mutants a lot. For a modern-day adaptation, like a movie might do, what TV show and what actor do you think could take their place? Well, those aren't actually the only pop culture entities who come up a lot in the New Mutants. We know, for example, that they're also really big Twin Peaks fans. But I don't know if you could actually drop that in that well in a modern book. I think the most recent Young Avengers run sort of tried and did a pretty good job at least working in modern social media. But the thing with entertainment between the 80s and now is that at this point, it's much, much more fractal. It's much more varied. There's a much wider selection. And so you don't really have things that are cultural phenomena on the level that something like Magnum P.I. would have been. You were talking, Miles, sort of about the Magnum P.I. core qualities that make him such a good figure for that. Yeah, I mean, he does the right thing. He's got a good heart, but he's also a little bit rebellious and countercultural and doesn't take bullshit. So I was thinking, I don't know, like Mal from Firefly, if it were 10 years ago, no. or maybe the Doctor from Doctor Who that's is, more popular than it used to be. This is too specific and too genre specific. I mean, part of the appeal of Magnum P.I. is he's like a regular dude in a regular world. But based on those qualities, I think there actually is a close analogy. I think there's really only one who actually fills all of those. And I think the new hero of a modern New Mutants would have to be Leslie Nope. Leslie Nope of Parks and Recreation. Yeah. What would Leslie Nope do? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'll and totally I can totally, I can totally imagine Sunspot idolizing her too. Oh man, he, he, he'd be a glorious little hot-headed feminist. It would be wonderful. He would be so great. Oh my god, I want a world where Sunspot idolizes Leslie. Nope, I feel like that is like the opposite of a dark future. That is a world where there is green space and there are swing sets everywhere and waffle stands as far as the eye can see, and mutants and humans live in harmony. And everyone appreciates little Sebastian. We, we're really big Parks and Rec fans. It's not obvious. <laughs> I love everything about this idea. So there is your answer, sort of. Now, we are a listener-supported podcast. And so one of the perks that comes with some tiers of Patreon support is thanks on the podcast from fictional characters, ridiculous voices. So I believe I will be turning this over to malevolent, disembodied 90s jewelry spirit, Malice. Having fun, Lee Spriggs, there in the background? Just you and your headphones? I know you're not. After all, I'm you, the you you want to be. Listeners love Rachel and Miles. They love you more. Get out there in the spotlight suites and show them what you can do. Show them just how washed up Rachel and Miles are. You and I both know, kid, the future is us. Wow. On that deeply menacing note, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Young, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. Our show is totally listener-supported and ad-free, and it's made possible by its generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become one of those fine folks, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Now, next week, Miles and I are going to be moving into our fancy new digs at Castle Sexy Dracula. And so the podcast will be taken over by excellent guest experts L. Collins of Intuit and Graham McMillan of Wait What? who will be taking you on a jaunt back to the swing in 1970s. As the beast flies solo and gets furry and blue. Well, gray and then black and then blue. But still. 